Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. So if you're listening online or listening to this, watching online or listening to this later, we have a little 10-question quiz every night just to see if Every night that we've gathered to see if folks are paying attention, tonight's questions, there are 25. Uh, Caden looked at me like he, he had just like missed the midterm exam or something, but uh, it'll be a good review. So let's get started tonight, stretching all the way back to that first session and then testing your knowledge all the way up to last session. Saul was a native of Tarsus. In what contemporary country is that ancient city located today? Turkey, slide please. Oh, Chris is running the show back there tonight. All right, Chris, thank you. So you have a circle there over Tarsus. It is in the south uh, east corner of what is now modern day Turkey. In fact, Tarsus would be in the general area where there have been so many terrible earthquakes this winter in Asia Minor. Uh, the best we can tell Saul, who would become Paul, was born around 5 A.D. in Tarsus. That puts him about a decade younger than Jesus. What do we know about Tarsus? You might remember that it is a distinctive Roman city, quite strategic, philosophical center, industrial center. Caesar Augustus had visited the town, so would Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and at the time of Paul, maybe 500,000 people or so called Tarsus home. Three things of note further about the city and its relationship with Paul. It was a hub for textile businesses in particular. What was Paul's, bonus bonus question, what was Paul's occupation? He's a tent maker. And so it was also a teaching center, particularly for Greek Stoics and other Greek philosophers. Paul, on a few occasions in his, uh, especially in his conversations in Acts, will quote a couple Stoics. So he's certainly exposed to that. And there was a thriving Jewish community in Tarsus as well. During the Babylonian captivity, 600 years before Jesus and Paul, Jews were scattered all over the Middle East. And so these synagogues erupted uh, as a result. Number two, of the four major social religious groups in Israel in the first century, Paul belonged to which group? The Pharisees. Next slide, Mr. Chris. So we've talked about these four groups along, and this is the, the last time that we will capture this in this study. The four major groups, first you have the Sadducees. They are the oldest of these four groups. They emerged after the rebuilding of the second temple as the, the Israelites came home from cap, captivity. They eventually became the elitist You might even call them the royalty, the leftover royalty, particularly by the time the Romans came along. The Romans did not allow uh, for the old 
Jewish order to keep their monarchy. They appointed rulers. That's how Herod got his job. But the Sanhedrin, excuse me, the Sadducees were the main uh, impetus of the Sanhedrin. And they were closely aligned with Rome, very friendly with Rome. Uh, Again, they were the elitist keepers of the temple, power brokers. The second group there are the Essenes. You can think of them as retreatists. Uh, Think of John the Baptist in some ways, that wild man in the desert baptizing new converts. They retreated into the desert mainly because of the corruption uh, of the Sadducees at the temple. Mickey Brown has just given me this tonight. Uh, It is from the original article cited. Make sure I see this right. It's getting bad. Y'all see that right there? Cited originally in the Times of Israel. I knew it was out there. 2,200-year-old coins prove Book of Maccabees. This is the Essene period. And these coins, there's a whole treasure trove of coins that were minted by uh, Ptolemy VI, king of Egypt. They date to 170 B.C. Ptolemy VI is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes' father who caused the Jewish rebellion of the Maccabees. These are found in the same caves just south of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran. That's pretty cool. Right, right on time, Mickey. Thank you for bringing that tonight. Those are the Essenes. They lived out in the desert. The Pharisees, Paul's home group, developed about 150 years before Jesus or Paul was born. So right after the Maccabean period, you see the, the Pharisees develop. Why do they develop? They were known as the pious ones. They're a party of the people. They do love the temple, they love the law, but they are not in love with the Sadducees. They see the Sadducees as corrupt, they see the Sadducees as having a theology that did not, we think of, and they, they were, we think of Pharisees being very legalistic, but they accuse the Sadducees of not adapting. So this is a party of the people. And not only is Paul a group of, uh, it, within this group, if you really had to pin Jesus down, As strange as this may sound, he would have more in common with the Pharisees than any of these other groups. He's certainly not a Sadducee. He's not not an elitist. He wasn't a retreatist, though there is some evidence that he spent time in the desert with the Essenes. But if you had to pick a group of which Jesus was more closely aligned, it would be the Pharisees. That's why they they brawled so much, is because they were close, but Jesus was much further further out than they were. The Pharisees, by the way, the only one of these groups that survived the destruction of the Roman temple, and they would go on to preserve rabbinical Judaism. And then that fourth group there, the Zealots, founded by Judas the Galilean about the time of Jesus' birth, theocratic nationalist, and they were bent on expelling every foreigner and every impure or disobedient Jew. Josephus holds the Zealots Responsible for the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the wars uh, with Rome. Paul had some zealous tendencies. We've talked about them as well. Question number three. Paul was a consenting witness to the death of which Christian martyr the very first? Stephen. That is correct. Paul, again, is a true believer. He thinks he is doing God's will by oppressing and persecuting early Christians. He's present at Stephen's execution who was stoned outside the gates of Jerusalem. And as it says, 
in the book of Acts, our very first introduction to Saul of Tarsus is that Stephen's executioners, quote, took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul agreed completely, completely with the killing of Stephen. So when this occurs, Paul is probably in his late 20s, maybe 30 years old. He's very young, very zealous, very committed. And in his heart of hearts, his conscience is clear. But we would view him as a very wild-eyed, dangerous radical who was happy to use violence to, to accomplish his goals. Number four, N.T. Wright hypothesizes that Saul was meditating on what Old Testament scripture on his way to Damascus? Ezekiel 1, that is right. So there's a mystic tradition in the century before Paul and the first century Judaism where zealous Pharisees, like Saul of Tarsus, Paul longed for this encounter with Yahweh, with God. And they would meditate, establish practice on Ezekiel 1. And we read a little bit of Ezekiel 1 weeks ago. Uh, it's okay if you do not remember it, because while it is memorable, it is hard to recall all of the details, because it is a cacophony of colors and sights, and sounds, and ringing bells, and faces, and living creatures, and rainbows over a sea of glass. And so the mystic uh, Jews would concentrate on this, and take in all of, all of these, these images, meditating on the scripture, they would usually have that completely memorized, and they would let their mind's eye go up to the faces of the angels, up to the throne, with this hope that when they got to the apex of the throne, they would behold the face of God. And so N.T. Wright's hypothesis is that Saul of Tarsus is doing this classic meditation of the first century on his way to Damascus. And as his, rise, his eyes rise to the top of the throne to see the face of God, it is Jesus of Nazareth who he encounters. It's, it's, a, it's a hypothesis, but it's a wonderful one. And when you know that mysticism of the day, and you... You, you combine it with those accounts that are given to us in the book of Acts, it makes complete sense. And he just collapses in a heap, as Ezekiel had. But he hears the voice of God as Jesus of Nazareth. Number five, Paul retreated into Arabia after his conversion. Where is it hypothesized that he traveled a place significant to the Jewish people? Mount Sinai. Here's our map. Another circle for you. Arabia in the time of Paul is not what we typically think of as Saudi Arabia, the empty quarter down there. Uh, the Nabadian kingdom is Arabia. And the Nabadians held everything from Damascus, Bostra, south down into Petra. In fact, it's the Nabadians who built the city of Petra who is now, that is now in Jordan. And then their kingdom extended over into the Sinai as well. And so the hypothesis is that Paul says that he went to Arabia and retreated there, that he was actually going all the way to Sinai. At Mount Sinai was where Moses received the law of God. It's also where a prophet by the name of Elijah retreated when uh, 
Ahab and Jezebel were attempting to kill him. And then Jesus, in Jesus' ministry, when he is on the Mount of Transfiguration, who should appear to Jesus as he is on his way? Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem, toward his suffering. Who should appear on that mountainside but Moses and Elijah, the great prophet and the great lawgiver of God? And Paul, still Saul at the time, seems to retreat into that desert, to that space, to experience something of that same encounter as he's putting the pieces of his new faith together. He has all, all the same ingredients, but he's having to put it together in a brand new recipe. Number six, how much time passed between Paul's conversion and his first missionary journey? You can be approximate. Fourteen years, approximately. Three years of early preaching retreat into the desert. Uh, ten years, there's the ten, ten years back in Tarsus. And then it looks like maybe a year in Syrian Antioch, where they're first called Christians. So if Paul is converted about 33 AD, and he's in his, you know, 30 years old, early 30s, he's such a polarizing character, such a polarizing figure that he can't stay in Jerusalem. He's just, he's just too hot to handle. And you might remember that he went up to the temple and he said, Jesus spoke to him at the temple and said, you better get out of here. And then one other account in Acts says, no, the brothers took him down to Caesarea and put him on a boat and said, you, we got to go. So both are true. Paul knew it. And, the, and the, the apostles knew it. He cannot stay here. So he spends a decade over in Tarsus. After a three-year retreat and then maybe another year before he launches on his first mission trip. Number seven, as Paul settles in Tarsus, who becomes the main character of the book of Acts? Nope. No, I think I heard it. Simon Peter becomes the primary character of the book of Acts. Acts 9.32 through Acts 12 spans 10 years. You read it, and it seems like it's two weeks, but it's 10 years. And you might say, well, how do they cram so much? They, didn't, they don't give us a whole lot of detail. It's because Luke is not an eyewitness to those accounts. If Luke had seen everything that he writes about, the book of Acts would probably be longer than the entire New Testament that it is now. He loves to pile in the details. And you can tell when he's not involved in describing things. So we get ten years in about three chapters or four chapters. Peter has this mystical vision of the animals coming down from, from uh, heaven in a sheet. While he's at Joppa, he is sent to preach to Cornelius, the very first Gentile convert that we, that we see. And it launches... This whole new movement of Christianity beginning to reach Gentiles, not just Jews. And then simultaneously, over those ten years, Gentiles start coming to faith uh, in Antioch in droves. And that's why Barnabas has to better, 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 better call Saul. He better go get Saul out of Tarsus and bring him back to Antioch because he is well equipped to face this. Number eight, the Great Jerusalem Council was convened. To address what primary concern? 
circumcision in specifically the Mosaic law in general. Either of those are, are correct. So this is 48, 49, 50 A.D. And as these Gentiles convert, the challenge put to Jewish Christians is, well, if they're going to get in on this, shouldn't they be practicing the Mosaic law as we have practiced it? That's, that's the reason the, the council convenes. And they come to the conclusion that largely leave the Gentiles be. They are not culturally, ethnically, religiously, they are not responsible to our Jewish customs. So this is something new that's going, going on. These God-fearers, these Gentiles are certainly coming to Christ. But, but we have to leave some space uh, for that. And, and Paul was instrumental in, in this process. Although, I still love it that at the council, when it's been talking about Paul and Barnabas, when they get to the council, Luke's language reverses to Barnabas and Paul to make it very clear that Paul didn't have anything to say at that council. Why? He's still too hot to handle. And if he starts talking, we may lose the case before the Jewish elders. And Barnabas is the one who does the talking. I love that. Number nine, Paul made six major stops as he circled the Aegean Sea. Four of those cities he would later write to. Can you name two of them? Thessalonica, Ephesus, not, not, Corinth, one more. Philippi, Philippi, that's exactly right. Those, those four. Number 10, emperor worship began with what important historical figure? That's half right. Well, no, 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 he's the right character, but there's a, there's a different individual. Julius. Julius. All right. Here is, and that's why I said it's half right. This is a coin from the first century, about the time of the birth of Christ. On the left, there's Octavian, who took the title, Caesar Augustus. On the back side of that same coin is a comet imprinted that says the divine Julius. Julius Caesar is murdered by the Senate at his funeral, this long, week-long funeral in Rome. A comet appears in the sky. When the comet appears, it's just a normal comet in a regular trajectory around the sun, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, interprets it as Julius Caesar rising to take his place among the gods, literally jumping up onto the funeral procession to make that declaration. That is the beginning of the divinification of the Roman empires, of the Roman emperors. So, upon his death... It is regarded that Julius has become a god. And then, whoever his heir is, in this case, Caesar Augustus, was referred to as the son of God. And this would go forward all the way to Constantine. So for 300 plus years, that would be the pattern. The Caesar who dies elevates to God. The Caesar who succeeds is the son of that God. So, we touched on a little bit of this last week, and, it, and after, after we chatted and went home, 
I, I failed to mention it. We'll get to it in a minute, but I'm going to go ahead and mention it. In Luke's gospel, now this is Luke writing all this in Acts. So in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 2, where the angels appear to the shepherds and say, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign of you. Luke is using an inscription that has now been discovered in the 1800s, almost word for word, of when Augustus rose to the throne. The herald reads, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people unto you has arisen this day the Son of God, Augustus Caesar. So Luke was using imperial language uh, as a challenge to the Roman Empire at that time. And, and this, was, th- th- this, is, this is a little wrinkle we've never got to talk about. But right there is a Pauline influence on the gospel of Luke itself. Because Luke was with Paul many times when he's traipsing across Europe and Asia Minor going after this emperor worship as one of his, one of his challenges. So, anyway. Number 11, ancient Corinth had a temple dedicated, okay, this, this, this is not a trick question because there's a couple temples, but ancient Corinth, we are in Corinth, had a temple dedicated to which Greco-Roman goddess? Nope. Aphrodite. Slide, please. Oh, poor Aphrodite here with her nose knocked off. But this is, Aphro- this is a statue of Aphrodite actually recovered uh, from Corinth, and that's the remains of the temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, lust, beauty, procreation. The Romans called her Venus. 10,000 10, female priestess worked at this temple. And when I say worked, they were ritualistic prostitutes. 10,000 of them in the city of Corinth. Number 12, how long did Paul remain in Ephesus? Two years. Too long. Too long. Two years. He was there two years, and we're hypoth- our hypothesis is that he spent some of that time incarcerated. Number 13, Demetrius, a silversmith, crafted shrines to honor which goddess the most important in Ephesus? Okay, I'm coming to you, Mickey. Artemis. And here's Artemis. This is a recreation here of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, one of the great ancient seven wonders of the world. We talked about Artemis, and you can can see this figure. This is one of the recovered figures, uh, metalwork figures from Ephesus. It's there in in the museum there today. All the animals and life around her waist and on her dress, giving the significance of life, and then again... Scholars are divided. I won't. Scholars are divided. Are those breasts or bull testicles? We do not know. Either way, the symbol being that she is the goddess of virility, the goddess of fertility, and she is a perpetual virgin. And uh, they had been worshiping Artemis at that location in Ephesus since the time of Moses. Since the time of Moses. So, very, very ancient. 
14, who warned the Roman authorities of the assassination plot against Paul? Paul's nephew, that is correct. 15, Paul would testify at Caesarea before two Roman governors. Who were they? Not Pilate. Festus. Festus and Felix. Yeah. That's right. Gunsmoke and Felix the cat. All right, that's good. Do what? Pilate was long gone before Paul came around. He had already been recalled to Rome. Yeah, but they have the same, they have the same position. Right. Pilate is with Jesus. That's right. 16, Luke's ending of Acts has Paul in Rome for how long in his own rented house? Two years. The answer is always two years or three years. It seems like Paul's imprisonments are two years and Paul's journeys are three years. That's a good way to remember it. Number 17, it is highly likely that Luke knew of Paul's release from Rome, his further travels, and his death. If so, why did Luke end Acts as he did? Number one, Paul has prevailed. And number two, Christianity has reached the center of the world. That seems to be Luke's approach. He knows more, but he's not telling. It doesn't matter in his telling of this story. He wants those who read the book of Acts to realize that in spite of all the oppositions and the arrests and the imprisonments, that Paul has made it to the very center of the world with the, with the gospel. 18, the two earliest primary sources for the synoptic gospels come from the gospel of Mark and a source known as what? Q. Not to be associated with anything you hear about Q today. I think we have a slide here. There you go. The two source hypothesis. And you might remember that Mark is the oldest and 90% of Mark is inside of Matthew. 50% of Mark is inside of Luke. And then 25% of Matthew and Luke are not found in Mark at all. And scholars think they're pulling that from a different source altogether. And that's where I should have talked about last week about the Pauline influence on Luke as a writer. Because by the time Luke writes his gospel, we think Paul is already dead. And so having traveled with Paul... It'd be just a wonderful hypothesis to think about Luke writing in light of knowing Paul, but never having met Jesus. Really interesting. 19, name at least one of the three most... Yes. Not that we know of. Not that we know of. No one's ever seen. And it's, it's a hypothesized document that's lost. Um, and we can, we can thank... Uh, Domocletian in the last Christian persecution about 300 where he raised every church he could get to and burned every book that he could get to and that seemed to have destroyed m many of the most ancient documents that we have thank you 19 name at least one of the three most disputed letters of the apostle Paul disputed as to authorship can you remember these No. No. Well, it, Colossians is questions, but it's not one of the most disputed. Both Timothys, first and second Timothy and Titus. They're regarded as the pastoral epistles. They don't appear in the earliest canons of the New Testament, 
And they are irreconcilable with events in the book of Acts. Although we reconstructed last week a hypothesis about Paul's last travel. I mean, we solved it, right? People, people should just ask us, right? 20, Paul's intentions to travel to Spain is upheld by three major references in early Christianity. Can you name any of those? Do you remember? Did you take notes last week? Clement of Rome, that's one. Here, I'll help you out. Clement of Rome, writing in the 90s, speaks of Paul traveling to the furthest limits of the West. The Acts of Peter from the late 2nd century. Vesuvius in Ecclesiastical History, writing in the early 4th century. And then there's a fourth one there. There's a long Spanish tradition from Tarragon and Tortosa. I thought y'all would all go book your pilgrimage across Catalina, Spain after hearing that last week and walk the steps of Paul. You can do it. 21, which Roman emperor falsely accused the Christian community of burning Rome in the summer of 64? Nero is the man. All historians of the day hold Nero responsible as the primary arsonist. Nero used the fact that it was the wealthy part of Rome that had burned and that the Christian community across the Tiber River was largely unscathed to hold the Christians responsible. 22, both Paul and Peter, according to early tradition, were held in which ancient prison in Rome? Oh, this is, this is a tough one. The Mamertine. Look out right here, a little, little study bug in the back. The Mamertine prison. M-A-M-E-R-T-I-N-E. Sometimes it is spelled M-A-M-M-E-R-T-I-N-E. Sometimes it is spelled M-A-M-E-R-I-T-N-N-E. So there you go. So it's, it's all over the place. It was a death row prison. It's a beautiful church now, uh, but it was a death row prison at the time. It had been, been a prison of some sort for 700 years before Paul ever made his way into it. It's very ancient. 23, the Flavian dynasty was a set of three Roman emperors who ruled over the last third of the first century, a father and his two sons. Can you name one of them? Titus. Flavian is the family name, so... The, that's, the, that's the Jeopardy buzzer that says, be more specific. All right, we'll take the slide here. Yes, you did. So Vespasian succeeds Nero by force, marches his legions to Rome from Jerusalem, where he was about to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Once he becomes emperor, Titus is sent back to finish the work that he began. Titus rules just a short time, and then his younger brother Domitian becomes emperor. These are the Flavians, the Flavian dynasty. These three, they rule over the last third of the first century, and my hypothesis is that this dynasty is the object of ire in the book of Revelation. Where am I here? All right, 24. This study began with an assumption that Paul's main theological argument was not justification by faith, but the creation of what? A new humanity. And we're going to talk about that 
tonight. Gentiles, Jews, Romans, Greeks, men, women, slaves, free. This barrier-breaking, community-building movement, and it is a new way of understanding God's presence and work in the world. Now, there's only one monotheistic faith in the first century, it's Judaism, in, in the known world. <clears throat> but even then, you had to go to the temple to commune with God. And so, Paul comes along and says, do you not know that each of you are a temple of, of God? And our answer is, no, we did not know that until you said it, Paul. It is a completely revolutionary concept of decentralizing of disown, the disownment of of a structure owning or holding or keeping God. God is now set free, as it were, in the world, in the hearts of believers. And it would apply to anyone who believes. So it's, it's, it's a revolutionary uh, concept. And then from there, of course, it's easy to go from there to, for Paul to say, you are the body of Christ. So each of you, God's Spirit lives within you. You are now a temple. And once you are connected with other believers, you are constructing this larger body, this super complex uh, no matter no matter where you go. And this is really a bonus question because this was not on the quiz last week. Or even mentioned in the notes. Where is the Apostle Paul purported to be buried? We, I, I, let's, start, let's start with the country. Italy, Rome. That's right. Appian Way. Yep, that's right. But this is a basilica. In just outside of Rome, it's the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, outside the, the traditional walls. This is a traditional site. This is a picture from the inside. You can peer down into this crypt, and uh, there are bone fragments there, no skull. The head is not attached to the body in any way. church was built there by Constantine, built on the site of a much older church, and this is the historical site, though you can be assured that we have no idea. No idea whatsoever. But that's... There you go. All right. For the remainder of our time tonight. Yes, yes, please. Please. They would not have done that. That would have been ornamentation much later. Oh. Yeah, they would. They would. It's known. Christian theology by late in the first century of resurrection, which was not believed. I mean, even the Sadducees in Judaism didn't believe in the resurrection. And the Greeks certainly didn't believe it. When Paul brings up resurrection in Athens, they, they, that's the thing that gets him mocked the most. So there was sometimes if a head was severed, they would separate head from body as a way of confounding resurrection. It's, it's also the original prohibition in Catholic theology about uh, cremation. It's a hangover from that. So, you know, if we cremate, then we've, we've so destroyed the body that it can't be reconstructed. And it's just, everything goes to dust. 
Everything goes to dust, no matter how much formaldehyde you pump into to, you know, to a body. Good, good point. So, we're going to look at four major themes tonight. I wish we had time to look at ten. Um, we'll talk about Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's promise, salvation by grace through faith, the Pauline mysticism to be in Christ, and the crea- that, that last one and big one, the creation of the new humanity. But before we do that, let's rearrange Paul's letters a little bit. And this is just my, my arrangement to, to help us tonight. There are five what you could call theological letters, four pastoral letters, and four personal letters. Now, this is not the usual reference. Usually, the pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I'm, I'm, I'm going to paint with a broader brush here. Theological letters of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are exactly that. Big issues. Big themes. Big explanations. The pastoral letters, particularly the letters to the Corinthians and the Thessalonians. We, in, with both of these churches... We are, only, we are like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. Only Paul's side. He's explaining things to them, answering questions, but we don't know what they have asked. And he is circling back to things that he is privy to, but no one else is. Unless, unless, un, un, except the recipients of the letters. So... These pastoral letters are very much rooted to their context, a context that we just don't have all the information to. And then the third arrangement, the personal letters. Letters written to individuals, to Timothy, to Titus, and a very short letter written to Philemon. And so as we talk about these major themes, we'll be centering our attention in the theological books. Now, this doesn't mean in the theological books, for example, that Paul isn't pastoral. He's very pastoral, particularly in, in Philippians. It doesn't mean that he's not personal. If you get to the end of the book of Rome, Romans, he just starts ticking off names. People he's with, people he wants to see, people he's sending greetings to. So there's a personal touch there as well. And so I don't mean just to, to so isolate these that these are only about theology. These are only pastoral. These are only personal because they all overlap. But this will just help us to see where the heavy-duty passages are uh, of Paul. They're in these five books here. With, with the exception in 1 Corinthians, of, of 1 Corinthians 15 could probably fall into a, a major theological discussion. But again, it is in relation to the situation on the ground in Corinth that we're not completely privy to. All right? Does that make sense? Okay, that said, we'll, we'll jump right to these big themes. Number one, Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel's promise. Now, go back to Acts chapter 13. It is the first missionary journey of Paul. He gets to Pisidian Antioch and recorded there is Paul's most extensive sermon that we have. And it's there intentionally. It is his boilerplate. It is his 
prototypical sermon. This is what he preached. If you say, well, what did Paul preach when he went to these towns? Well, this is what he preached. He would go to a synagogue and he would address his talk to two groups of people, the people of Israel, his people, and Gentiles who worship God or God-fearers. They're all together in the same place. He is addressing his comments to monotheist inside a polytheistic culture. That's where he begins. He then recounts to them the history of the Jewish people. They know this history. But he is rhetorically drawing them into his conversation. So, you know, if you want to, a good way to convince somebody of something is to start on common ground. And that's where he begins. This is the common ground we know. This is the God I worship. This is the God you worship. We are coming from the same place. And he would usually take this talk all the way to David and talk about how David was God's chosen, a man after God's own heart. And then from David, he would leap to Jesus. And he would get to the punchline. God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as He promised. Now, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that the message of salvation has been sent. That would create one of three reactions. Simultaneously, there would be those who would say, I knew it. This is the good news we have been waiting for. There were others who would say, I need to think about this. And there would be a third group who would accuse Paul of heresy and try to kill him. Everywhere he went, those are the three reactions. And this is his prototypical sermon. Um. The entire book of Romans is about, uh, and this is not, this is not a, a, an, o, an oversimplification. The entire book of Romans is about this. It is this major treatise to Gentile believers. Paul explaining his relationship with Israel and the people that he loved so much. He even says, I would be anathema. I would be condemned. I would be cast out if only my people would understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises. Uh, And he says that we're all in need of God's love and righteousness. That love and righteousness has come to us in Christ. It's the fulfillment of everything God has ever promised. And from Romans chapter 3, Paul says, God's righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference, and this this carries over into that new humanity stuff, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The other theological book that emphasizes this uh, is Colossians. Go and read it. And from chapter 1, you'll, I'll read this. I don't think you have this on the slide, but you have it on your, on your text there. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now we can pick this apart and go in a hundred different directions. You can talk about, oh, Jesus isn't uncreated, so he existed before, and you talk about the divinity of Christ, you can talk about the resurrection, you can talk about what the cross did, you can talk about the church, Jesus is head of the church, but it's all under this one umbrella that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you have been waiting on. And Paul does it here in the most cosmic scope possible. Everything held together by Jesus of Nazareth, who is now the risen Christ. Questions? So Jesus is a common name. Christ is a title. So... And I'm not, I'm not being silly when I say this, you know, that Jesus' parents, their last name wasn't Christ. So Christ is the Greek Christos, anointed. The, the Hebrew equivalent would be Messiah, the anointed one. So whenever, whenever you see Christ associated with Jesus, either before or after, it is either Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, or the anointed one who is Jesus. They can be used interchangeably. Questions? And again, Colossians and Romans. Uh, massive pieces here. Now again, th- this you're going to find this in every letter Paul writes. Particularly theological letters. But Romans and Colossians, he really is driving the point home. All right, theme number two. Salvation by grace through faith. This is really interesting in that this theme is the direct outworking of that council that met in Jerusalem about 50 AD. It was one of the review questions tonight. What was that council all about? The, the only apostolic council that we ever know of. Should, should, should Gentiles be circumcised? Should Gentiles follow the Mosaic law? Everything Paul says about salvation by grace through faith is an answer to that question. Um, these Gentiles are coming in. They're getting in on our, on our gig. But they're not like us, and they don't understand God the way we have understood God. And yet, here they are following Jesus. How, do they, how, how does it work for them? How, how, how does this work out in, in real life that these people who don't know anything about Yahweh and don't have a thousand, two thousand year history with Yahweh, and these Johnny-come-latelys can just jump in and say, we belong to God too. 
Paul's answer is salvation by grace through faith. And it's this part of Pauline theology that awakens the Protestant Reformation. We are most familiar with this particular theme because we are Protestants. For the last 500 years, this has been the, the theological emphasis of Paul uh, taught in our seminaries and taught in, taught in our churches. Because the reformers were coming out of a very law-driven legalism that had gripped the church. And the reformers saw a way forward into a liberation and a liberty by applying Paul's words to their situation. And we still do. And the principal theological treatise on this matter is the book of Galatians. What's your favorite book of Paul's, Ronnie, and why is it Galatians? Well, Galatians certainly has been a favorite of mine because of this very thing. Galatians, and, and you have one up here, but I'll, you have several, I think, printed for you. Galatians 2. We, and again, Paul's earliest writing is Galatians. Writing in the aftermath of this great Jerusalem council. Writing to a group of believers who are being wrangled in to requiring Mosaic law for everyone. Paul says this, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, when he uses the word sinful there, he is being facetious. Oh, those dirty outsiders. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You are trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For in Christ Jesus, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then we move to Ephesians 2, probably the most well-known verse in this theme. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then also a paragraph from Philippians 3. If someone else thinks... They have reason to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. And here comes Paul's resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Imagine saying that. I've done it all. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And if we haven't driven the point home yet, Colossians 2. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Such rules are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, 
have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value. He is, we would say in my southern mountain tradition, he is shucking the corn now, holding nothing back. This is Paul coming to maturity on the law that he had given his entire life to. He was saying, you know, it really worked to a degree as far as it could take you, but he couldn't take us any further. Jesus has fulfilled all of that. Now, what do we mean by fulfillment? If you plant a seed in the ground, if, if you only worry about the seed, you miss what the seed will grow into. In that sense, Jesus is the fruit, the flower that has bloomed from this seed. And Paul was saying, you're all worried about keeping the seed a seed. But it it has become something beyond your wildest dreams. Uh, It has grown into something that you didn't expect. And that's really an image that he gives of what has happened with Jesus of Nazareth. Out of this has come the promise, and we obtain it by grace and through faith. Questions? It's a 20, that's a, that, and, and granted, you know, I've lost count of the revival meetings I went to as a kid and as a youngster, and there was always the altar call. That is a very much a late 19th century, 20th century invitation. No one that we can tell anywhere in Christian history previously came to faith like that. Uh, now, am I saying that's all wrong? No, but I'm saying that it's all contextual. Very much contextual. Um, and people may read that hundreds of years from now and say, what were they doing? I don't, we don't understand, uh, you know, what, what this, th- this was. When it was just a particular North American flavor and a little bit of English and Welsh flavor of, of how people came to know Christ. Uh, but, in, but in, in, I hope you see this too, that there's no formulaic construction at all. Paul is giving all the story. All of this is the, the story of what's going on. And he is writing, you know, in this chaotic period where Christianity is coming out of Judaism and the Jews don't know whether to hang on to them or to let them go. They don't know there's this big apocalyptic feel that, well, this really don't matter. It's all coming to an end anyway. And then the temple is destroyed and it doesn't come to an end. Life goes on. And then they have to begin to say, well, how does all this fit together? And uh, in this sense, without Paul articulating and framing and putting these together, now, don't, 
don't take this wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that God couldn't do this work without Paul. That's not what I'm saying. But without Paul or someone in this role, Christianity does not become the force that it becomes. It required someone of his ability and his intelligence and his calling to synthesize Old Testament with the new movement of, of Christ. That's why the Reformers loved him so much. They saw themselves in that tradition of synthesizing what they had known uh, with a thousand years of Catholicism and coming out of that, adapting and changing to, to a new Europe and to a new world. And it's, 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 you know, we always, you don't know to look, you, don't, you won't see something that you're not told to look for, right? And, and Judaism, and it's no, it, they're not unique in this because we're guilty of it now. The Judaism of Paul's day, because it was in complete survival mode, we feel like we're about to be extinguished, could only see their uniqueness and not their calling as blessing to bless and serve the world. Now, the North American church is pretty close to that today. We can feel so cornered, or you look at the numbers, and the, the church is, seems to be dying in large sections of the world. Uh, and if we're not careful, we'll just focus on our survival and miss the point that we're here to bless and serve the world. All, History doesn't always repeat itself, but history rhymes. And so, so much of this just keeps coming back around and back around. And, and Jesus and Paul are both calling upon that very blessing to be blessed. The, the original Abrahamic covenant. I am, your descendants will be as the, the sand on the shore as the stars in the sky. That's all the way back in Genesis. That's back at the beginning. And God's not talking about just Jewish people. He's talking about the whole existence in creation. Real quick, the, number three, the Pauline mysticism. Now, I, could, I could spend another session here. Paul talks about being in, with, by uh, Christ about 150 times. It's his most repeated subject. To be in Christ is to join Jesus in union. He doesn't always explain it. He takes it as, a, an, as an experiential reality. This is a great quote. Albert Schweitzer wrote a book back in the 50s. And, and Schweitzer is the reason that the in Christ theology has been brought back into Western consciousness anyway. And Schweitzer's, I love this phrase, in Christ, Paul was saying something like this, I know my true self, I already belong to the transcendent, in Christ, I am assured of resurrection, in Him, I am a child of God. That is just a beautiful statement. So if you take that, and everywhere Paul says, in Christ, 140, 
47 times. If you take that little phrase and put it there with it, the language comes alive. Schweitzer says that once you have this key, so much of everything Paul says becomes so much less of a riddle. This is what Paul means when he's talking about uh, in Christ. Uh, You could also say that to be in Christ is to understand that the life of Jesus, the ongoing life of Christ is communicated to you, transferred to you, so that really the only, and this is good theology, the only Jesus that exists in the world is the Jesus that exists in those who call on His name. That's the inverse of that. To be in Christ, Christ within us, you know, well, I just hope Jesus will help them. Well, how is that going to work? If you're praying for Jesus to go help somebody, how is that going to actually be delivered? You know, it's going to be Jesus' people doing that. There's also that very practical uh, element here. A few references of the 150 or so. Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who know their true self, who already belong to the transcendent, who are assured of resurrection, and know that they are children of God. Put all that in there. There is no condemnation for those. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, things present nor future, nor powers, heights, depths, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2 and 3. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Ephesians 2, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Philippians 1 and 4, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Colossians 2 and 3, in Christ you have been brought to fullness, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. It's, it's inexhaustible. This in, with, and by Christ language. You could contemplate the meaning of it the rest of your life and never get to the end of it, which I think is Paul's exact intent. That it is this eternal binding with the risen Jesus. And it is largely unexplored. And to go back to the the formulaic, you know, I, I prayed a prayer and so now I'm in. There's no difference between that and, and, and sacramentalism. A proper priest poured water on my head, so I'm in. See, th- those, are th- those are the same things. The unexplored part of faith is what Paul is talking about here. To be in Christ. To have that be your reality and your experience to the extent that your identity has been swallowed up in His. What does that mean? We don't hear as many sermons about that. It's, it's, like, it's inexhaustible. Completely inexhaustible. I got one more theme. Questions? All right. The big one. The creation of the new humanity. The 
Pauline question, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? No, we did not. Not till you brought it up. Not till you clarified it for us. Uh, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 12, Galatians 3, Ephesians 2, 3, and 4 uh, all point to this. Probably my favorite one there. Let's just read the Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. Have you got it there? I really like this one. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made the two groups one, And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body. Sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There is one body. One spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. It doesn't even even take time to read the Galatians 3 passage where he says there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. There's a, a great equalization that takes place in Christ so that we were all... Uh, uniquely ourselves and yet connected as peers and equals with no hierarchies. No hierarchies. Questions? Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Exactly. And those are, those are, I think in Paul's mind, reciprocal. If you understand that your identity is in Christ, and I say it casually on Sundays at the, at the Lord's table, but when you leave here, you leave, this is a symbol that you are carrying the blood, the, you are the blood and body of Christ entering the world. This is the symbol of that Pauline reality. Paul would say that in the spiritual sense, that is exactly what has happened. And then, thus, the practical sense. Uh, I, I, you know, it's just this, this magnificence of the end here, this, this new humanity. Take time with those texts. And don't, don't just read those verses that I pulled out. Read the paragraph before. Read the paragraph after. And you see that Paul is driving this point home everywhere he goes. Because Paul has understood that there's no more room for division lines. And this is as pertinent in the 21st century as it was in the first. There's no more room for division lines of race, ethnics, religion, history, past, uh, borders. If you belong in Christ, 
you have more in, more in common, more connection with a person in Christ than you do of someone who is same socioeconomic standard as you, same color as you, same you know, heritage as you. That there is this creation of something extraordinary and brand new in the world. Mm-hmm. Back to the seed. Yeah. Now it's grown into this. And, and there are a lot of folks that want to keep it the seed. The seed is controllable. The seed is buried there in the ground. But, you know, you have to come over here to Jesus and say, all right, plant that mustard seed and it's going to get away from you. And that's, that's what Paul was experiencing. And he wasn't trying to control it. He was just trying to speak to the reality of it that, that is, is erupting in the world. There's a whole, you know, we could, we could spend the rest. I think there's one more slide. Uh, other themes that we could spend time with, life by the Spirit. Uh, Paul talks about the Spirit almost as much as he talks about being in Christ. But his little handle on this is that he understands that the Spirit is actually the deliv- delivery mechanism of the Christ life. Uh, it's not really a mystery. It's just when, he, when you see that, uh, the works of the flesh are this, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. As the Spirit works in our life, the Spirit is just carrying out the Jesus agenda in each of us. 140 times. Of course, Paul talks about the church, the ecclesia, those called and elected for service. And then another theme, perseverance through suffering. Paul understood that to suffer is an inevitable fact of Christian discipleship. We try to, we, we do a good job avoiding it. And, and, and actually creating a theology of non-suffering. If you're suffering, something's wrong. Paul would say, if you're something suffering, something's right. Which is a little frightening to our 21st century ears. Questions before we go? Because I am 15 minutes over. And I, Garrett, you better behave back there. Uh, that Paul hates women. It's the number one problem that the American church has in its interpretation of Paul. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it's the prohibition. That's why there are no female priests in the Catholic church. It's why there are no female pastors in a large swath of, of uh, Protestant Christianity. Uh, it is... A misreading of Paul that creates true abusive patriarchy and systems that are designed for men and against women. Uh, and then you say, well, you know, there are those verses in there where he seems to be, you know, really against women. Go back to the contextual situation in each of those. You know where those arise at? It arises culture of the time, Roman culture at the time, but it arises in the very cities. Can we go back to Artemis? Can we go back to Aphrodite? You cannot speak about the role of women in Paul's letters without understanding 
And when he tells a woman in Corinth, you know, keep your head covered up, there are 10,000 ritualistic prostitutes who shaved their heads and led worship gatherings as a means of worshiping Aphrodite. So when Paul says, cover your head, he's not saying women should cover their head for the rest of all human Christian history. The situation in Corinth was such, <laughs> I like this, the situation in Corinth was such that it was so contextual and so at hand that to behave, don't come to church acting like you're a prostitute for Aphrodite. That would be the simpler way of saying it. But Paul didn't say it that way. Paul had no idea that what he was writing to the Corinthians that we would be picking apart 2,000 years later. Yeah, cover your bald head. And, and if you go to the Ephesians passage where it's another one of his hard words. Have you, did you see the statues of Artemis? I mean, did you see them? It is a pornographic culture. It, there is no cultural comparison. And you may think, you know, North America and the United States has gone to hell in a handbasket. We're the, there is no cultural comparison to Corinth or Ephesus in the 21st century anywhere in the world. Anywhere. Well, maybe on the dark web of the internet. But that would be it. Uh, it was so, so, uh, just that's the word. It's the, the word's pornographic. Pornographic as worship. So when you're creating a new community that's about gathering people together to worship God, that's the last thing that you needed. Because it sent the message that this is just like everything else. All right. Thank y'all. What a fantastic study. All right.